0: When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him and from the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray. God, we just ask, as always, that you would take your words, your truth. This account Luke penned for us so many years ago under the inspiration of your spirit and impact our hearts and lives this morning. Teach us what we need to be taught. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge and correct us where we need to be challenged and corrected. That we would sit here today, God, not just as learners, but people who would take what we learn, leave from here, as James says, and also be doers of the word. And we ask this as always for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the kingdom, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for several years actually uh, rusty you're gonna laugh because here you go again uh, R- rusty and i have have done uh, football we've, we've been game officials clock officials um, for years over at forest hill central and um, North Point Christian, and Rusty and I were laughing last week. It it seems like Rusty's finding his way into so many of my sermon illustrations these days. I'm like, I guess I get World War II, Lord of the Rings, and Rusty Brewster uh, are my go-to. But uh, we we were doing a game earlier this year, actually, at North Point, and and North Point, I don't even remember who they were playing. They were just destroying this this poor team. And I saw one of the funniest plays I've ever seen in a football game. This poor punter, who was very busy that night, he, he comes out and, to punt the ball away and for like the 30th time in the first quarter. Um, and, uh, but uh, you know, he comes to punt the ball. And I don't even know how you hit a football in such a way to make it do what happened with this one. But this guy uh, steps back, gets a snap, and he punts the ball. And, of course, you know, you've seen how that works. And you have the offensive linemen all there, and they're blocking, defending the guy. So the guy in front of him is down like this. He punts the ball, and it goes straight ahead. It hits the the offensive lineman right in the backside, I mean, right there. And and the punter's standing there, and it perfectly deflects right back to the punter, who catches it. He's looking at it. You could hear the whole sideline yelling, run! And he's like, and he takes off running, and he gets the first down. He gets tackled. But the whole thing turned into a positive play, a first down. And it was hilarious, because you you could hear the guys in the, the, the coach's box next to us, like, laughing, going, hey! just like we drew it up, you know, and uh, go out there and do the old punt the ball into the backside play, so we get it back and run for the first down, you know, every, every coach plans that one, right, but uh, I, I thought that when I read this passage, and I thought about that poor punter, I thought, you know, often in my life, I am that, that punter, in, in, in what seems like a losing battle, you know, discouraged. And and, and I'm trying my best, and I I, I punt the ball to try to serve, try to do what I feel like God, and and my best ends up in the backside of a lineman, and and a failure once again. But then God does stuff. (laughs) Sometimes God, in his goodness, takes my efforts in the midst of my discouragement, And he gives me that ball back through his own sovereignty that I couldn't have designed and planned on my own. And he says to me, run. Uh, Okay. And I run. And something good happens. I want to suggest to you, and I want to reference a passage here in 1 Corinthians just a moment. I want to suggest to you today that Paul is also that punter as he enters Corinth and ministers there. That Paul was in a place of heaviness And discouragement. I want to unpack that here in a minute. Explain to you why I say that. But let's talk just for a minute about where Paul is at, and then unpack that. Paul leaves Athens, it's where we were last week, and he transitions to the city of Corinth. Corinth was the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. And uh, this was a, a wealthy city. It was a significant city, uh, important. They hosted their own version of the Olympic Games there. A lot of trade went through there, a lot of money in Corinth. We continue to see, by the way, as a side note, Paul being strategic in where he goes with the gospel. It wasn't haphazard. Paul was planning. he was following the Lord's leading. And he finds himself in the strategic city of Corinth. One of the things about Corinth, though that you didn't know, is Corinth was renowned for its immorality. It was renowned for its immorality. They worshipped the goddess of Aphrodite there. Some estimate that there were up to a thousand temple prostitutes in the city of Corinth. And the word Corinth itself, or Corinthian, became synonymous with immorality and immoral activity. To act, the Corinthian meant to commit fornication or to practice fornication. Corinthian companions, or a Corinthian girl, became synonymous with prostitution. So this was a hard place. Ancient historian Horace wrote of Corinth that it is a town where only the tough survive. Darrell Bach, in his commentary on Acts, wrote that Corinth was the Las Vegas of its time. This is where Paul finds himself for ministry. Now, Here's why I want to suggest to you that Paul was maybe a little bit like that punter. Uh, Luke doesn't necessarily record this for us in this account here. But Paul, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, gives us a little insight into his psyche as he went into Corinth to minister. So this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he writes, And I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is speaking my language right here. I'm going to be suspicious here this morning. It's often in your language, too. You ever afraid? Frustrated? Feel like <laughs> this stinks? I'm a punter, and the best I can do is shank the ball. <laughs> that's all I got. I think that's what Paul's saying here. I don't have words of wisdom. I don't have much at all except Jesus and the gospel. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense if you're in Paul's place. Right? Just think through the cities where he's been. Philippi right? Beaten and imprisoned. Thessalonica, run out of town by an angry mob. Berea, run out of town by the same angry mob, who was so fanatical that they left Thessalonica and went to Berea to cause problems for him there. Ends up in Athens where he's not beaten, but at the bet he's treated with indifference and as kind of a fool, intellectual idiot. I mean, if I'm Paul, yeah, I... I'd feel this way too, right? I mean, if I preached here and four Sundays ago, you beat me and threw me in prison after the sermon, and I came back the next week, and you, you ran me out of town and, and beat up the elders, and the next week, I go preach somewhere else, and you decide, I'm going to go there and beat them up again, and then I go to preach again, and no one listens, and you're all sneering at me. Like, I'm probably going to start saying, I think I'm done with this whole preaching gig. This stinks, right? Paul was human, Right? He was an apostle, he was a godly man, but he was a man, and he was human, and he had the same experiences and emotions and feelings that we have. Right? We'll unpack that more as we go on. Paul ends up here in Athens, and I want us just to have this in our minds as we unpack this passage, I just think this is important to have in the background as to what Paul was feeling and as, experiencing as he ministered in Corinth. So he goes there, and he does minister. He just does what he does in the power of the Spirit of God. So he goes, and he establishes some new important friendships and partnerships. He meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And again, the outline today, I didn't bother. I'm like, sometimes trying to come up with a cute outline to make it. This is just the, the narrative of the text. And I think sometimes this is the best thing we can do with Scripture. Just the outline's the narrative of the text. It's a summary, okay? So... He establishes some new important friendships and partnerships, Priscilla and Aquila. These are Jews who had been banished from Rome. This is, by the way, the second time this had happened in Rome. Tiberius had done the same thing about 20 years before. And they end up in Corinth, and they meet Paul. They're the same trade. They're tent makers, as Paul, uh, as Paul is. They're tent makers. so That means they worked with leather. And uh, they worked together. Uh, Paul stayed with them. Their shop and probably their home was right there in, in the significant marketplace in Corinth. And, um, and again, I, I think this is significant to, to think of Paul. Paul just, he goes where the people are at. He puts himself in the marketplace. Uh, he finds points and places of intersection uh, to, to engage people with the gospel. And I think we would do well to continue to take that uh, into our hearts and minds as well. Right? It's good to be here together with followers of Jesus Christ. It's good to fellowship with followers of Jesus Christ. But we also want to be looking to engage the world. Part of the reason why in the past we've decided to play in certain baseball leagues with Zach. um, To say, hey, we're going to stay in this league because we've got some relationships and some connections here. Uh, We've looked for that in the the special needs community with the opportunities we have uh, through Tyler. We we try to find those points of of connection in our world. So that's what he does. He stays in the marketplace here with Priscilla and Aquila. I believe that Priscilla and Aquila were already believers I think if they weren't, if they had come to Christ here, I think Paul or Luke would have noted that. So I think they come, they're already believers. Paul connects with them. They become uh, so crucial to his ministry. And I love this, too, in all of this, that Paul uh, goes from debating intellectuals, uh, the Areopagus and Mars Hill in Athens, to doing blue-collar labor in Corinth. I just think that's kind of cool. It demonstrates this flexibility of Paul to do and be whatever he needs to be and do for the sake of the gospel. So he meets them, he engages them. Priscilla and Aquila have become super significant, as I said. They accompany Paul to Ephesus when he leaves Corinth. We see that later on in the chapter. We see in 1 Corinthians 16 that the church meets in their house. Um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they both teach and disciple Apollos. We see here at the end of chapter 18. Uh, What I love about this, they're ordinary people. They're just ordinary people who, who, who God used... In a mighty way, in Paul's ministry, just because they made themselves available. In Romans 16, Paul actually uses this terminology Priscilla and Aquila, they risked their necks for me. And all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And we find at that point, they're back in Rome hosting another church ordinary people, blue collar trade people. Here's another thought their banishment from Rome was terrible. And again, don't do what we do sometimes, right? We read it and we know that this turned out really well, this partnership in the gospel. When they were kicked out of Rome, they didn't know they were going to meet Paul. They didn't get kicked out and go, oh, this is going to be awesome because we're going to meet Paul and be involved in great ministry for the rest of our lives. No, this was a drag, being banished from their home. It's the same as we getting kicked out of Grand Rapids, like leaving my job and everything I know. I had to go find somewhere else. But here's the thing to keep in mind. If they're not kicked out of Rome, Sovereignty of God, right? That football bouncing back. They're not kicked out of Rome. They never meet Paul. And all that we just referred to never happens. It's a cool thought, right? God does this. He intersects our lives sovereignly, guiding and directing, sometimes in the midst of difficulties and challenges, to accomplish something. I feel like, I feel like for them, it wasn't unlike Kathy and I. Many of you have heard this story. I've often asked, how did you guys end up Forest Hills? It was the same thing. God just happened to have us cross paths with people. So we moved to Grand Rapids um, in the spring of 1999 for me to start seminary. We started looking for a church. For a kid who grew up in Massachusetts, like Grand Rapids was crazy to me. It's like, here's a church. And in Massachusetts, if you don't like that church, you're like, well, there's another one, I think, 40 miles away. We could try that one. And if we don't like that one, there's another 40 miles the other direction. Right? I get to Grand Rapids, and it's like, like oh, my word, like here's a church. And if we don't like that one, there's one four minutes away. That way, that way, that way, that way, and that way, and you know. So we're trying to find a church, and it's it is overwhelming. We have all these great churches we're visiting, but we're just praying God show. And we go to Cedarville for a homecoming that fall, still like frustrated trying to find a church. And we go to church that Sunday morning, and uh, Grace Baptist, actually, where Jeff is now, and um, we run into the pastor's wife, who Kathy knew from her college days there, and uh, she said to Kathy and I, she said, "Oh, you guys are in Grand Rapids. Have you found a church yet?" And we're like, no, it's crazy. Like, we're looking, to so many good places, we just don't know, and she goes, oh, she goes, I know this great little church, you've probably never heard of it, but we know the pastor and his wife, Cedarville grads, and just good people, and we're like, oh, yeah, where's that? And uh, she, she goes, uh, Eastmont Baptist Church. And right away in my mind, I'm like, Oh, that's that old ugly '70s building on Cascade Road. Like, and you know, in my mind, I'm like, we're not going there. You know, <laughs> but they have a cool sign. I'm like, they have a cool sign. I remember that. You know, and um, so we're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice. You know, whatever. And I tacked you know, file thirteen. You know, um, and then ten minutes later, totally uncorroborated, we run into another couple, Tim and Allison Walker. Some of you may remember them from back in the day. Um, we run and they find out we're in Grand Rapids and they start asking us the same question. Well, you guys have a church yet? No, uh, we don't. Like, where do you guys go? I'm not kidding. They're like, it's a little church. Probably you've never heard of it. The pastor, we a great guy, came actually a Cedarville grad. And I'm st- <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> and they go Eastmont Baptist Church, and we're like, okay, this is weird. You know, we got in the car to leave, and I looked at Kathy, she looks at me, I'm like, so maybe next week we should try Eastmont Baptist Church, right? And the rest is history. We never left after that next Sunday. And Right, God, I think that's what goes on here. Paul, here's Priscilla and Aquila, and God just happens in his sovereignty to connect these people. who have been banished, kicked out of Rome. Paul, at the end of himself, fearful, you guys need each other. God does that. He brings them together for his purposes. I love that about this story. So, Paul establishes these friendships, these partnerships, and he faithfully continues to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Faithfully continues his ministry there. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Here's our word reasoned again, right? By reasoned, we mean you communicate, you talk, you dialogue, you seek to understand, but you ultimately proclaim truth. We don't leave it just that, oh, we're dialoguing. We Paul said something. And we know he said something because the Jews and Greeks get upset with him. The Jews seek to take legal action against them. So he was obviously saying something. He was obviously claiming absolute truth. And I suggest to you again, as we have several times throughout the book of Acts, that God's word, when accurately presented, will cause a problem at the end of the day because it claims absolute authority. Paul's teaching and preaching here was making enough of a difference that it was noticed the Jews in the synagogue start to raise issues with Paul. In the midst of this, his, his boys arrive from Macedonia. Right? Silas and Timothy, who had been left behind while Paul went down to Athens, they eventually meet up here in Corinth. And this leads to more intense and focused ministry for Paul. We see that in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word. Their arrival is corresponding to Paul's ability to be more occupied with the word. I think a couple reasons for that. We don't have a lot of time to look into this. I think part of it is because now Paul, who had been doing tent making while he was ministering, is able to completely walk away from the tent making because we know that Paul and Barnabas bring with him financial help from Macedonia. We read this in 2 Corinthians 11. The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need and in Philippians 4:15 from the church of Philippi there they entered into partnership with me through giving. So Paul had been working to support himself in Corinth when Paul and Silas or when Silas and Timothy get there he's able now to devote more of his energy and focus to ministry. I think there is something here for us. This is why, as a church, we're committed to supporting our missionaries at, at, at decent levels, not just, hey, let's give them 15 bucks a month. Like, right? We want to take care of our missionaries. We want to take care of people in gospel ministry so that they don't have to worry about that and bear that burden and so that they can be freed to minister for the gospel. I think there's a principle here that we can take away. Um, I think the other part of this is Paul, when they arrived, he was encouraged by good news from the Thessalonian church. These brothers brought a word of encouragement from Thessalonica. If you go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we read, Paul, when he left Thessalonica, he was concerned. I mean, again, these people there were fanatics. And he left, and he didn't have social media to track their progress. They weren't able to make quick phone calls here and there. He left thinking to himself, will this baby church, these people I care about and love, uh, this church, that we, will they survive? Can anyone survive under the weight of persecution that's happening there? Thessalonica. And we read Paul in 1 Thessalonians talk about uh, that he was struggling uh, with this in our distress and affliction. We have been comforted about you through your faith, right? Just before this, Paul had said, When I could stand it no more, right? And uh, and, and then he hears that they're doing well. So I think they bring a word of encouragement to Paul as well. And I just want to say, again, just by way of a, a takeaway, by way of principle, don't underestimate the power of encouragement. I think Paul's able to be a little bit more free now. He, he's bolstered in his ministry by, by being financially supported and by hearing a word of encouragement. Do that for one another, by the way. If something good is happening, if, if your kid is coming home and they've been challenged by something at Ignite, Or you, like, go tell that teacher, hey, I appreciate this. If, 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 you're, if your hub group leader has challenged you and you've appreciated, go tell them. It's a great word of encouragement. I got a text last Sunday morning before church from a brother here and just said something about the the encouragement that the ax has been and just praying. Do you know what? It's like three sentences and it's just such a blessing. I think Paul was charged up a little bit here by a word of encouragement. Do that for each other. Encourage each other in ministry. Even though he's more committed here and able to commit himself a little bit more fully, um, he still faces... Opposition from the Jews, right? Same movie we've seen already several times in the book of Acts. He faces significant opposition from uh, the Jews. They oppose him and they revile him. Revile them. They intend to do him harm, whether it's physical or his reputation, whatever. They don't like him and they want to make life miserable for him. And again, as Paul says here in chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 6, this reaction was against the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Again, Paul was not just dialoguing. He was making absolute claims about the person and work of Jesus. And as we said, again, so many times in the book of Acts, the message of Jesus, the person and message of Jesus, is a problem to the world around us. But we must unapologetically declare him. Amen? Right? Our message is going to annoy the world. And that's just the way it is. So, what does Paul do? Paul's response to the opposition from the Jews, he condemns them. And he turns his attention to the Gentiles. He shakes out his garments. This is something they had done for, for centuries as a symbol of, I am, I am free of you. I'm not responsible for you. And he makes this declaration, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Part of this thinking uh, was common in, in, in the Jews' way of thinking. Uh, this was Ezekiel. All the way back to the time of Ezekiel even, when Ezekiel was told to preach on behalf of God and declare the message to Israel. The Lord said to Ezekiel, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So the way Paul is thinking in regard to the gospel here. What Ezekiel, what God's telling Ezekiel to say here is, put a watchman there, and so the watchman gives the warning, and let's make the parallel to us, right? What are we? We are God's watchmen, and our warning is the gospel, declaring that. And what God was saying to Ezekiel is, you put a watchman there, and that watchman's responsibility is to declare truth and declare danger. And if he declares that, and the people don't listen, then the blood's on them. Their own blood is on their hands. They rejected the message. But if the watchman doesn't do his job, then He's responsible. That's what Paul's saying. He goes, I'm not responsible for this. I've declared God's truth, and you're rejecting it. That's heavy for us. I think we need to take that, too, for ourselves. Like, I'm responsible. If I, if I share the gospel and they reject it, that's on them. But if, if I'm in proximity to someone day after day after day after day, and I never share the truth of God's word, it, I think there's a sense where that some of that rests on me. Paul declares here. He says the same thing here at the end of Ephesians, uh, at the end of Acts, when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders for the last time, at the end of his journey, his missionary journey, they know they'll never see each other again, and this is what Paul says to them. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I warned you. I told you what God said. And that's what he says here in Corinth. He says, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And again, I want to point, this isn't a complete abandonment, right? It's not a complete abandonment. He went to uh, Titius, 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 I don't even know how, whatever. Let's call him Titius. How does that sound? A worshiper of God whose house was right next door to the synagogue. I love that. He stays in proximity to the synagogue. You know where to find me. You know where to find me, right? Why Paul transferred here from Aquila and Priscilla's house, I'm not sure. My my sense is that he probably did it to take the heat off of them uh, a little bit. But again, I love it that he goes next door he turns his investment to people who are going to listen. For Paul, it's a stewardship thing. doesn't mean he's rejecting, but I'm going to go and I'm going to spend my time in people who are actually going to listen, invest in them. And as a result of that, the gospel still bears fruit. In verse 8, we see that in spite of that, in spite of the response, I think it's due to the fact that Paul stays open. Paul remains accessible. Paul still loves the Jews, and still has an open door to them. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to Jesus along with his whole family, right? right? That football bounced back to Paul here, and he ran for a first down, and Crispus comes to Jesus. Love that. 1 Corinthians 1.14, we see that Paul himself baptized Crispus. How cool would that baptism have been, right? In verse 8, we see that many of the Corinthians continue to hear Paul and are baptized. So Paul moves on, but he doesn't give up on him, and people are still coming to Christ. But here's what's interesting. In the midst of all this, Paul still needs this word from the Lord. from the Lord. Verses 9 through 10, Paul receives much-needed encouragement from God to stay faithful and continue in his ministry in Corinth. Jesus appears to him and gives him three directives. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why did Paul need this message from God? I go back to the 1 Corinthians passage. I think Paul, in the midst of this all, was still discouraged and still afraid. Again, he was human. He'd seen this movie before, right? Even though he'd seen some successes, he'd seen six successes in every city he'd been in. But if I'm Paul, I'm going, same movie, different day. People are responding, but guess what? I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. One of these days, I'm away, I'm gonna get beaten again, I'm gonna get thrown in prison again, I'm gonna get run out of town again. And I think Paul is experiencing discouragement once again because the past is playing out in his mind. Remember, he's human. And God tells him, Don't be afraid, go on speaking, and do not be silent. And I'll be honest, right? These are my tendencies. When I get nervous, when I get afraid, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to crawl back into my hole a little bit, and I'm going to be fearful. But God says to him the same promises that I believe are declared to us today. He says, I am with you, and no one will attack you. No one will harm you, right? This is what Jesus told his followers. I am with you always to the end of the age. In Matthew chapter 10, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear him who can destroy both the body, uh, the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So you say, well, God needs to appear to me in a vision and tell me no one's going to hurt me. That's probably not going to happen, but you don't need it. You've got this. You've got the word of God. And the same assurance that you cannot be harmed belongs to you that belonged to Paul here. The world cannot touch you. Right? It could create struggle for you and problems for you and maybe even kill your body. But at the end of the day, this is what Jesus is getting at. In Matthew 10, you are safe under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. So continue on in your ministry. Don't be afraid. And he says, listen, Paul, I still got people. I still got people. There's going to be fruit. Stay faithful. Bob Knapp gave me a note. Last week, I probably asked Colleen and Christy, right? Sometimes prison ministry probably feels discouraging. What's going to go on? What's going to happen, right? Bob gives me this note, and I thought of this note when I read this. God still got people, even in hard places like prison. This was a note written to Bob Knapp. I'm willing to give all of me to Jesus Christ because he gave me a second chance at life, so I know I have my name in his book to accomplish something in life. Because if I wasn't in prison, I'd be dead right now. So me coming to prison... I think and believe that Jesus put me here so that I can take some time to get to know myself in order to receive what he has planned for me. We would look at people like that and go, there's no one there. Why would I bother? And Jesus said, I have people there. I have people in Grand Rapids. I have people in Forest Hills. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it stinks sometimes. Yes, the past 20 times you've shared your faith, you've been rejected, but I have people. And so we say, okay, I'll stay faithful. In spite of my fear, your work is not in vain. There will be fruit. And God shows Paul a little bit here. right? Already a synagogue leader has come to Jesus. Again, why did Paul need to hear this? I think he was afraid. I think he could have been depressed over the moral depravity of Corinth. as part of it. Again, right? Here's our passage. Fears. Fears. Let's speak in my language. I have fears of my own life. Oftentimes, they're irrational. Right? Someone leaves the church. I'm like ah, everyone's gonna leave. Budget's a little short. Uh, my family's gonna starve. Uh, this is what we do. This is not even like that stuff. I mean, like you know, three. Krista goes off to college. My first one going off to college. I'm like, she's gonna forget me. You know, never gonna talk to me again. Like, uh, poor me. This is what we do. We get fearful, you get fearful. Fear not. It's such a common theme in Scripture. Fear not. Fear is a liar. Fear cripples. Fear comes when we forget who God is. Fear comes when we forget who we are as his beloved created people. Fear comes when we give it too much power by making people and circumstances bigger than God and when we forget that our circumstances are serving God and his purposes Fear comes when we are characterized by unbelief. John Flavel, a Puritan writer, uh, writes this To the extent our souls are empty of faith, they are filled with fear. Right? So we don't have visions necessarily that Paul had, but we have promises and we have hope. Stop borrowing trouble and worrying about tomorrow. This quote from uh, Lloyd Ogilvie. Preacher from years past, he writes this, I have learned this repeatedly in my own life. When my strength is depleted, when my rhetoric is unpolished by human talent, when I am weary, the Lord has a much better tool for empathetic, sensitive communication. The barriers are down. When I know I can do nothing by myself, my poverty becomes a channel of His power. More than that, often when I feel I have been least efficient, people have been helped most effectively. It's taken me a long time to learn that the lower my resistances are and the less self-consciousness I have, the more the word of God comes through. I've experienced that so many times. i preach preached a sermon. Someone come up to me afterwards and are like, that was such a blessing. This is what I got out of it. And I'm sitting there going, right, I did not even think about that. Like, <laughs> and that's when it's a reminder. God's like, see, I don't need you. <laughs> I knew what that person needed, and here's the power of my word, and I took it and applied it according to what they need. We'll keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep you, you know. God just uses us, right? in our weakness. Paul takes us to heart, and he commits to a long obedience in the same direction. He stays there for another year and a half. The Jews mounts a final attack upon Paul by bringing him before Gallio, and this effort also falls, fails miserably. Gallio comes as a new pro proconsul. Pro I think the Jews see it as an opportunity. Oh, he's going to sympathize with us. Now we can get rid of, uh, rid of Paul. And they accuse him of breaking the law, probably a degree of Roman law they're referring to, that this Christianity is a new religion and it doesn't, it's not operating legally like Judaism is. And I love what Gallio does here. He's like, get out of, get out of here. Paul, Paul he, he wasn't anticipating this. Paul, it says Paul gets ready to speak. Paul's ready to fight, defend himself. Galileo doesn't even have a chance to get out of here. I don't even want to hear this. This isn't my problem. This isn't a significant issue. Go. Go away. Work it out yourselves. Realize and understand the significance of this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. We'll get ready to sing one more song here. Understand the significance of this. Twice already in this passage, you know why God tells Paul not to be afraid? There's two instances in this passage where we see something devastating happen and God turn around and use it for his glory. Priscilla and Aquila kicked out of Rome, leaving your home. We see how that turned out. We talked about that. This is the other one. Gallio, in a significant capital city, makes a legal declaration concerning Christianity. The Jews want Gallio to silence Christianity. Gallio, through his indifference, places Christianity under the same characterization as the Jews. What that offered was protection by the Roman government. For at least two to three more years. Now Nero's going to come to power and they're going to realize Christianity is a threat because these people love this man Jesus more than Caesar. But for now, what happens is Christianity is afforded legal protection for two to three more years at least. Just enough time for the gospel to be established and grounded. Paul would have had a lot tougher sledding through his missionary journeys had Galileo ruled against him in this moment. See what God does? We punt that football, in our insufficiency, and our failure, sometimes God puts that thing right back in our hands and says, run. And we run, and God says, see what I do? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep punting footballs. Some may not go where you want them to go, but God and his power and sovereignty He's gonna do his thing. Don't be afraid. Stay faithful. Right? Word of God will accomplish his purposes.